There are three reasons why we lift up hands. To point out God, to lift up our hearts and show where our affections are, and to give God the opportunity to examine us and see that they are holy hands. Because they're the hands that get involved in sin, and God looks at them that way. I also reviewed the fact this morning that we ought to say amen and show concurrence with prayer requests and agreement with statements that are made. Be it so really when we make a request. It is so in truth when a statement is made. The Lord's people ought to say amen. We the word of God and Paul assumed that it would take place in a New Testament church that men would say amen and even unlearned men who simply hear a simple statement of truth that they believe and they want to add their agreement to it by saying, Amen. And the third point we made this morning is that prayer does not need to be long. And if there's one thing I can emphasize to make your prayer life something you can do, keep it short. Keep it short. If all of you were to pray, like I said this morning, for 60 it would be an improvement in many of you. And I trust that you'll do that. A 60-second prayer. You'll find very few prayers in the Word of God that take more than 60 seconds to read slowly. Very few. Some of the most important prayers all in the Word of God take less than a minute. And those that take over are never more than two or three minutes. Like Solomon's prayer of dedication to the temple, I consider that a great event. What a celebration. What a feast. What a dedication. That prayer just takes a few verses. And it would be done in a minute or two minutes. Don't make your prayers so long that you get discouraged. Don't have so many requests that you don't make it through your list. This evening we go to the content of effectual prayer. What should you include in your prayer? First of all, to ask God for some particular event or for God to do something specific in order to reveal His will is not unscriptural, although it is dangerous. The first item of the content of prayer, let me give you an example in the Word of God. Do you remember Gideon? Gideon has the proverbial fleece in Judges chapter 6. Gideon was wrong. God gave him his request. But if you do what Gideon did, you're in violation of James chapter 1 already because you're already doubting. God told Gideon what to do. When you read a Bible verse, you don't need to ask God to reveal his will. You've got it right here. You have the more sure word of prophecy. Gideon had been told to go and fight the Midianites. But he was a chicken-hearted man. And so he put out the fleece one way. That wasn't enough. He had to put it out another way. That wasn't enough. He asked God to go down and give him a vision. So God sent him down, remember, with his armor bearer, and he listened to that dream be interpreted in the Midianite tent. I mean, the man needed help. You know why? He wasn't a man of faith. you got to be careful when you ask for that fleece. The point I want to make here is that asking for a fleece in a certain situation is not wrong. But you make sure you've got a situation that justifies it. For instance, look at Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24. In Genesis chapter 24, we have a problem. Isaac is 40 years old and he's not married. And friends, that's a problem. That's too old not to be married. And Abraham knows it. Abraham's concerned about it. And so Abraham sends his servant to go find a wife for Isaac. And here's how this servant found Rebekah that became Isaac's wife. Verse 12. This is the servant praying. Now we're dealing with prayer tonight. Verse 12. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, I pray thee, send me good speed this day, and show kindness unto my master Abraham. <laughs> he wasn't going to wait a week, was he? Show me mercy this day in good speed. Verse 13, Behold, I stand here by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water. And let it come to pass that the damsel to whom I shall say, Let down thy pitcher, I pray thee, that I may drink. 
And she shall say, Drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Let the same be she that thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. And thereby shall I know that thou hast showed kindness unto my master. Now there is a prayer for the wife of a 40-year-old man. But if we had a 40-year-old man who was in this congregation in need of a wife, I would not recommend going to Ryan's Steakhouse and sitting down and praying after you thank the Lord for your steak dinner or your food bar, depending on which you took, that whatever woman comes and offers to fill my glass when it's half empty, Lord, she's the one you've appointed for me. Now, do you know why? Because God's given you all a brain. And he's given you a book, a manual on how to find a virtuous woman. What is a virtuous woman? You don't have to do that. You've got to understand something. Abraham was limited. Do you know where he could go? To his father's house. To his relatives was the only place he could go and just pick one. There was, there was no option but what was there. And he sent the servant, and the servant went and did it this way, and God dealt this way. Abraham didn't even have the five books of Moses. Abraham didn't have anything except a supernaturally revealed will of God. That's how they did it. Now, you can do a lot of things today to find a wife if you want one. You can use all kinds of measure, like Terry Kruger. Whether it's in the Philippines or not, you can put an ad in the newspaper in America and advertise for a Christian woman and screen them out as they send their responses in perfectly legitimate, logical, objective approach to finding someone, especially when you're in a congregation this small. But God's given us means by which to find women and to measure them. And we don't need to do what Abraham did. When you start asking for things like Abraham, when you've got a word, the Word of God that teaches you things, you may very well end up with the wrong woman. You know why? Because you're tempting God, and God is under no obligation to help you. When you tempt Him with some prayer like that today, God may very well give you the wrong woman. There are means you can use. You can pursue every woman you know. There are other churches we know of. There are other pastors. You can pursue girls, that they, women that they might know of. You can advertise. You can look yourself. And you can pray for it by asking God to open opportunities to find a woman, and then you can measure that woman by the Word of God. And the Bible says a lot about a godly woman. But don't pray like that. You may get yourself in trouble. You know, that's like the man who decides one day while he's driving along in his car that he needs a new house. Why, he's just unhappy with the house he's in. And so he says, God, I'm looking for a new house, and if you'll bring a house my way that has four bedrooms, three bathrooms, and is less than $80,000, I'll buy it because I'll see that that's your will. I believe that there's a very strong chance before he goes very far at all, he's going to see a house with four bedrooms, three baths, and under $80,000. And I wouldn't buy it with, I wouldn't buy it if it was the last house in the world because you're approaching it the wrong way. That, that isn't dealing the way God's asked you to deal. You are to use the Word of God and especially all the principles of Bible economics to come up with the criteria for a house that God would want you to have. And in my illustration, I assume that that wasn't done. Now, when you, when you, do, when you go through the proper process and then ask for God to bring this particular house, you know, especially when it's four bedrooms, three baths, and under 60,000, you know, you need prayer because you need a miracle. But don't you pray for God to reveal himself to you or to reveal his will to you like he did to Gideon when you've got so much instruction Gideon didn't have. And I hope you have more faith than Gideon had because Gideon was a man of low faith. When you ask God to intervene supernaturally, you are tempting God if you can avoid that intervention by some natural means. If you can do something naturally to help yourself, don't you ask God 
for supernatural intervention. The reason you can do something naturally is by the grace of God. That's why we have surgeons in America. God has allowed you, God ordained that you were born in the United States where there are surgeons. You should take advantage of them and not expect a supernatural intervention to solve a disease. You can pray for God to intervene and solve a physical health problem, but while you wait, you better be pursuing all the natural means God's given you. God may just cut short your use of those natural means by intervening supernaturally, but we don't presume on that. Christian scientists presume on it. Charismatics presume on it. Jehovah's Witnesses presume on it. We don't. We use natural means in a reasonable time frame and trust God to bless natural means or to intervene supernaturally if he so chooses. Like I said last Sunday, if, for instance, you're house shopping and you boil it down to three houses. You're indifferent to the three. Indifferent means one's not better than the other. You've got three houses. You love all three. You don't know which one to choose. They all measure based on everything you know in God's Word and all the counsel you've received from friends to be according to God's will. Listen, get two long sticks, one short stick, have your wife hide the end so you can't tell which is which, and before your family, have a short prayer meeting and pull one. Not a thing in the world wrong with that, but notice, the only way we got to the drawing of sticks or the casting of a lot was by pursuing with natural means and natural understanding what God's already taught us. Make sure you've done all that you can do before you do that. I have heard so many people tell me on how they got into trouble by trusting the Lord. See, Jesus could have cast himself off the temple and trusted the Lord. That's the point I'm after. I'll always go back to Luke 4. Jesus Christ had the opportunity to trust God, and he didn't. He didn't need to because there were other ways down from the top than to jump off onto the pavement below. Do you understand that difference? That's a big difference, but you'd be amazed at how many people operate under expecting God to intervene supernaturally. And when something comes along, you know, they've been thinking, I'd like a house or I'd like a particular car. And then all of a sudden, Someone at work offers that car to them and say, I'm selling this car. Wait a minute, I just thought about that last week. And they take that as a supernatural sign. They take that as the fleece that God is telling them to go ahead and buy the car. You only buy the car if it meets all of the standards in God's Word. Be careful of all those coincidences. I believe in such coincidences. They're stumbling blocks prepared by God himself to make to see if you're going to go by his word or if you're going to go by coincidences. God wants you relying on his word and the intelligence he gave you. Content of prayer. Yes, you can pray for something sp particular like the drawing of a straw in certain situations, but be very careful. You don't need to pray like Abraham's servant. You have means that you can use superior to his. It is scriptural and common among godly men to pray for God's judgment. We're talking about the content of prayer. To pray for God's judgment on others. You know, some are absolutely shocked at the way we pray. When they hear us pray for someone to be miserable, for God to make someone to take away their peace, they can't believe that we'd make such a prayer for people. I think that's the kindest thing you could possibly say for someone who's in error. I mean, you could ask for lightning or a broken leg in a car accident. I mean, just to pray for them to lose their peace and be miserable until they get things right with the Lord. Is that hate or is that love? But you'd be amazed at what people think. Or there are our true enemies, those who would rail on this congregation that we would pray for God's judgment on them because of the enemies of God. The examples of such prayer are legion. So we've got to limit ourselves, but let's look at Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16. The content of effectual prayer. What should you pray about? 
You can pray for God to reveal His will. That's the first point we've covered. But make sure you've done everything you can to find that will through His written word. The second thing you should pray for is judgment on wicked men. In Numbers chapter 16, Meek Moses here is dealing with Dathan and Abiram. And he says in verse 15, And Moses was very wroth, and said unto the Lord, Respect not thou their offering. I have not taken one ass from them, neither have I hurt one of them. Now I use Moses because Moses was the meekest man in the face of the earth. Meek Moses. But yet he says here, Respect not thou their offering. He prays that God will not accept the worship of Dathan and Abiram. And that's perfectly lawful and good and righteous, even for a meek man, because Dathan and Abiram were violating the written word of God. They were wicked men. They were rebellious men. And such a prayer was just fine. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 33. Deuteronomy chapter 33. Prayer for God's judgment on wicked men. In Deuteronomy 33, this is just before Moses dies and is buried by God. And he is going through the different tribes and blessing them and praying for them. And in verses 8 through 11, he's blessing the tribe of Levi, the tribe of the priests. And he says in verse 11, Bless, Lord, his substance, and accept the work of his hands. Smite through the loins of them that rise against him and of them that hate him, that they rise not again. Notice meek Moses praying here for God's ministers. Smite through the loins of them that rise against him and of them that hate him, that they rise not again. If anyone speaks against God's ministers, Moses says, strike through them that they never rise again. I think of Doeg the Edomite. Doeg the Edomite who killed Abimelech and all the high priests and their families. And Psalm 52 is a prayer of destruction upon him. Moses here is praying that very way. It is perfectly lawful for you to pray for God's judgment on God's enemies. Let's turn to one or two psalms. I've got a string of about 15 here. We'll look at one or two. The psalms are filled with David's prayer and Asaph's prayers and Moses' prayers for God's judgment. Let's look at Psalm 5. Psalm 5 and verse 10. Destroy thou them, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against thee. Now there is a specific prayer for God's judgment. Destroy thou them, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out for the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against thee. Now David was a sinner. And when you pray this way, someone will come up to you, one of these good modern Pharisees, and will say, if you're without sin, then you cast the first stone. Listen, there's no one without sin, and yet we're commanded to cast stones, and we're given by example to pray the casting of stones. David wasn't without sin, but he wasn't living in sin. And these individuals were. They were rebellious, wicked men. David was not a wicked man. David had a wicked act, and he failed. But he did not live in that wickedness after God spoke to him. We can pray for judgment on our enemies. We have a lot of them in government. We can pray for, our, for judgment on them. Look at chapter 10 and verse 15. There's so many examples. I mean, it, the Bible talks about breaking their teeth, O God, and so forth. Here it says, break their arms. Psalm 10 and verse 15, Break thou the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Seek out his wickedness till thou find none. Break thou the arm of the wicked and the evil man. You want to pray that on Ted Kennedy? Amen. I'll be your prayer partner. <laughs> he deserves it. He's a wicked man. Almost everything that comes out of his mouth is contrary to the Word of God. He's an example in government. We're going to have examples maybe in our congregation for us to pray God's judgment on them. And for those who would rail on us religiously, for the Pope of Rome, for God, he's an enemy of God. He takes the word of God in his teeth and violates it. And there's, it's perfectly proper to pray for God's judgment 
on him. There's so many, and you don't need any more examples on that. I mean, the Bible is filled with prayer for God's judgment on wicked men. Now, let me qualify, though, briefly how you better cover yourself when you pray for God's judgment on wicked men, and you should know these two points, don't you? Number one, you better not pray for God's judgment on a personal enemy unless you're only praying for God's judgment on that personal enemy because he is God's enemy. I preached a whole sermon on that. I, can't, I don't want to preach it again, or this will be a year-end series. Right? I don't need to preach that again, do I? Righteous indignation. Don't you ever pray for God's judgment on someone that is your personal enemy, because then you're simply seeking it for personal gratification. That's why Stephen said, Lay not this sin to their charge, O Lord, in Acts chapter 7 when he was stoned. Lay not this sin to their charge. Stephen did not pray for God's judgment on those that were stoning him. Because it was against him, that to him was such a slight offense. But David would say, O Lord, do not I hate them that hate thee. When you see someone that hates God and takes God's word in their teeth and violates it and abuses God's word and leads people astray, pray God's judgment on them for the honor and glory of God. And even if we come in here and rejoice together about their destruction, that's not wrong yet, unless you do it out of pride or some personal reason. That's reason number one. Reason number two is you better not pray for God's judgment on someone where you're guilty of the same or a similar crime. I mean, that is really asking for it. When you ask God to judge the wicked, O Lord, destroy them, O Lord, and then you're guilty of a similar crime, what are you asking for? He'll destroy you in wor worse because you've been such a hypocrite with such a prayer. Those are the two limiting factors. Don't pray for personal vengeance, and don't pray when you're a hypocrite guilty of the same crime. There's so many examples. Brethren, Paul asked God to reward Alexander the coppersmith for his works. By name, in a prayer to Timothy, Paul said for God to reward Alexander coppersmith for his evil works. Revelation chapter 6, we can read about the saints in heaven. Do you know what? They're still praying. Do you know what they're praying for? God to judge his enemies here on this earth. Oh, Lord, how long? How long are you going to take before you judge? They're still praying in Revelation 6.10. An important part of prayer is to pray for God's judgment on his enemies. That's like asking for a repetition of the destruction of Pharaoh, and God loves destroying Pharaohs, and he loves us praying for it. But don't do it out of pride. Don't make that Pharaoh your neighbor that kept you up the night before with a barking dog. And don't pray for God's judgment on sodomites when you're an adulterer. You say, well, there's a big difference between those crimes. There is a difference. But they'll both spend eternity in hell. Don't you pray. We, we do a lot of that, and we better be careful. But on the other hand, we shouldn't stop praying for God's judgment. If we stop praying for God's judgment, our prayers are going to look anemic compared to the prayers in the Bible. Point number three, remind God of his promises when you pray. Do some reminding with God. Pretend like he's got a poor memory and remind him of his promises. You say, that sounds sacrilegious. That sounds irreverent. I love this concept of prayer, of reminding God of his promises. He wants us to do that. This is best accomplished by quoting relevant passages of Scripture, if you can remember them. I mean, give the reference. Tell God where it's at and that it's written a certain way and quote it and say, Lord, you said it. You call this your word. I believe it. Now, remember your promise and fulfill it in my life. God wants to hear that. Look at Genesis 32. Who do you think we're going to read about in Genesis 32? Three guesses and the first two don't count. Who is it in Genesis 32 that prayed? Jacob, Jacob, the prince with God. Look at Genesis 32. To see him using the promises of God as leverage in prayer. What has God magnified above his name? His word. You know, you can call some men all sorts of names and they won't, it won't bother them a bit. But you call a man a liar 
and he has a right to get upset because you're questioning his integrity. And when you bring promises before God and ask him to fulfill those promises, you're putting God on trial if he's going to prove whether he's a God of his word or not. That's what you're doing. And God has magnified his word above his name. He is going to come through. I'm talking about a fulcrum this evening that's miles long. I mean, a lever. Boy, I'm not, I wouldn't make an engineer, would I? I wouldn't even make a third grader. I'm talking about a lever on a fulcrum, and that lever is reminding God of his promises. Don't you smile out there. I may remember, forget my simple machines, but I can get home by turning a key. Thank God for simple transportation. This is a measure of leverage in prayer to remind God of promises, and Jacob did that in Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32, beginning at verse 9. And Jacob said, here's his prayer, now watch it. O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which saidst unto me, Return unto thy country, and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies, and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me, and the mother with the children." And thou saidest, I will surely do thee good, and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. That is a four-verse prayer, two promises of God. He begins with one and ends with one, and in between, I'm scared. I am afraid of Esau. Now you were the one that told me to return to my father's country. That's in verse 10. He reminds God of what he said. Well, that is in verse 9. Return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. You told me to return, and you would deal well. Now, I went, and I'm coming back. I did what you said. You said you would deal well. And you also said, I will do, surely do thee good, and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Now, what's God going to do? Be a liar? No way. No way will God be a liar. He's going to protect Jacob. Notice how Jacob praised the man who was called a prince with God. He remembered things God said and used those things in prayer against God as leverage with God. You said this. If you don't do it, I mean, what's the bottom line? If you don't do it, you're not a God of your word. You told me to do it. I met the conditions. Now do it. That's power, is it? Isn't it? Isn't that power of argument to take a man's own words and use them against him? Well, God has given us his word, and we can use that against him, and Jacob does it. And by against him, I mean what I'm saying. You wrestle with God. You fight with him for your petitions. You don't let him go. You use every hammerlock, half Nelson, that you can get to get your way with God, and I mean that respectfully, and God knows my heart and the intent, and you can see all that right here in these verses. Now, Jacob did that. Moses, however, is my favorite example. Num the book of Numbers, chapter 14. Numbers, chapter 14. For years I've enjoyed this example of how Moses... Was in, I mean, God had made up his mind, it sounded like. He was going to destroy Israel. And how Moses got a hold of God in a hurry and arrested his great anger against Israel. Numbers chapter 14 is when the 12 spies went into Canaan, came back. Ten said it's too, too much. The giants are too big, can't do it. Two of them said we can take it and it's a good land and we ought to do it. And the children of Israel agreed with the majority, like most men do. And the truth was in the minority, like it usually is. And God said he's going to destroy the nation. That's the context of Numbers chapter 14. Now look at verse 17. I'm going to leave the first two verses of the prayer because they come at another time. But verse 17 is the middle of his prayer. 
And now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great according as thou hast spoken, saying... Now notice, Moses is appealing to God to let his power be great, as he had said. Now what power are you talking about? You know, God said, what power are you talking about, Moses? I do want to show my power. Verse 18, the Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people according unto the greatness of thy mercy, and as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. Do you remember when Moses went up into Mount Sinai and God showed his backsides to Moses and he proclaimed the name of the Lord? Guess what the name of the Lord is that, that appeared to Moses? The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. There in verse 18, Moses remembered that. God told me he was a long-suffering God. He was a merciful God. He would forgive. And now when Moses realizes God is so upset, do you, re do you realize the, the height of their crime? God had prepared a land flowing with milk and honey. He had had the wells dug for them, as the Bible puts it. They wouldn't even have to dig wells. He had the vineyards planted for them. They wouldn't have to plant vineyards. He had the houses built for them. They wouldn't have to build houses. He made them a great nation, the land of Egypt, and brought them out of it with a mighty hand through the Red Sea. He brought them to the edge of it. They could go in and live happily ever after. It would be the true end to a fairy tale. More than man could imagine. I mean, it's, this was God's land for them and God's best. And they said, we can't do it. We don't want to do it. Forgetting everything God had done in the last year through that wilderness. Do you realize the height of their crime? God was incensed against them. And for good reason. And Moses realized, it's a late hour. I better pray. And you know how he prays with the greatest leverage? Lord, show your power. God loves to show his power. Don't we emphasize that in our Psalms reading about every Sunday morning? God loves to show his power. But the power Moses asked God to show was according to the word that God had spoken to him. The Lord is long-suffering. And God said, I mean, was it a long prayer? <laughs> Not very long, but it used scripture. It took God's word against him. And the Lord said in verse 20, I have pardoned according to thy word. What was his word? God's word. God's word. Look at 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 18. You know this. We read this chapter several weeks ago, the first Sunday I preached on prayer. God spoke to David. He begins speaking in verse 12. The promises are, be are given beginning in verse 12. And those promises extend down through verse 16 by Nathan the prophet. God's promise. Remember, the rest of that chapter is David appealing to the promise of God. Look at verse 29, the last verse of David's statements. This is a prayer of David, beginning at verse 18 down through 29. Therefore now let it please thee to bless the house of thy servant, that it may continue forever before thee. For thou, O Lord God, hast spoken it, and with thy blessing let the house of thy servant be blessed forever. God had blessed the house of David, but David quoted Scripture and took God's promise and used it against him. For thou, O Lord God, hast spoken it. Now you've said something, God. Do it. Be a God of your word, and God will be a God of his word. Oh, there's so, there's so many more examples that we could use. Look at Nehemiah chapter 1. The book of Nehemiah, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Nehemiah chapter 1. The Jews have returned to Jerusalem and are rebuilding it after having been taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. Nehemiah, however, is still working in the capital city of Persia. 
And now he prays here in Nehemiah chapter 1. I want you to get verses 8 and 9. Remember, notice, Nehemiah asking God to remember. Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, Though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence, and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. And then Nehemiah goes on to say, Now these are thy servants and thy people. We fulfill that condition. Are you going to keep your word? See, Moses had taught the children of Israel, If you're ever scattered because of God's judgment, if you'll repent and seek God's face, he'll restore you to the land. Here goes Nehemiah, resurrecting that promise, asking God to remember it, and using it as a means of leverage with God. It's one of the wrestling tricks, wrestling holds, whatever you want to call it, that you ought to use with God to be effective with Him. He wants to be reminded of His Word and to show where your faith rests, because faith rests on God's promises. And you're reminding God of the basis for your faith. You know, if you're a good parent, if you're a good parent, a nice promise to invoke is in Matthew chapter 7, where the Lord said that he would do far better than natural parents. Now, if you're not a good parent, I wouldn't invoke that. But if you're a good parent, you should invoke that promise and say, now, Lord, you know how I deal with my children. And you said that you're able to do far better than I can as an evil father. I'm looking for it. I want to see how well you can treat me. I'm asking, are you going to give me something less? Use that kind of leverage with God. Remind God of his promise to hear asking. He said, ask and it shall be given you. Remind him of that simple statement. You said, we have not because we ask not. I'm asking, Lord. Remind God of his promise to honor agreement, that if two of you shall agree in your prayer, say, God, we're in agreement. Name the two parties. Are you going to honor the agreement we have? God said he would give wisdom liberally. Do you remind him of that promise? God, you said liberally. I'm not asking for just a little. I want a whole lot. I want to be very wise. Use that promise. The Lord giveth liberally to all men. Use promises when you pray. Number four, you may use vows when you pray, but like point number one, be careful. Be very careful when you use vows. It's better not to vow than to vow and not keep it, as we've read and studied before in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. Can you think of a woman who made a vow and God honored her prayer because of her vow? Hannah. Hannah prayed for a son and said, God, give me a son and I'll give him back to you. I'll lend him to the Lord all of his days. She had a son and she kept her vow. As soon as he was weaned, she took him to the temple and gave him up. And he served in the temple the rest of his days. God heard her prayer, didn't he? She made a commitment to do something and God honored that commitment. God honored that vow. But when you vow, make sure you pay. And when you vow, make sure you vow prudently. I can read in Judges chapter 11 that a man named Jephthah once vowed, Lord, you give me the victory in battle and I'll give you in burnt sacrifice the first thing that meets me when I come home. Well, the first thing that met poor Jephthah was his only daughter. That's vowing imprudently. Be careful when you open your mouth. Be not rash, as Ecclesiastes chapter 5 would put it. Vows are effective in prayer but be careful with vows. They worked with Hannah. It worked with Jephthah. But it was an imprudent vow, and his daughter suffered for it the rest of her life, and he suffered for it the rest of his life, knowing she was suffering. Effectual prayer should include praise. Don't you ever get down without praising God in prayer. You can praise God in just a couple of sentences. That doesn't mean you go wild with praise the Lord's. You can praise God by ascribing greatness to our Maker and reminding Him of some of the things you know 
of what he's done. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 2. This is also a prayer of Hannah. 1 Samuel chapter 2. We've read this prayer before, but it's describing the greatness of God. And when you praise God, God being the extremely jealous being that he is, he loves to hear that praise. And when you please him by praising his greatness and his glory, he wants to reward you for it. <coughs> First Samuel chapter 2. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. This is the first verse. Mine horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. There is none holy as the Lord. Notice she's praising God. For there is none beside thee. Neither is there any rock like our God. Listen to Hannah pray. There is none holy as the Lord. This is a woman praying. Neither is there any rock like our God. Verse 6, The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill and so forth. He puts princes up on high. She's ascribing greatness to our God. This is a woman praying. She's praising God. If you want to pray effectually like they, the men and women did in the Word of God, then you need to include praise. Oh, there's, you know that prayer needs to include praise. Jeremiah 32, I'll not have you turn there, is a, is a wonderful prayer of Jeremiah. It's ten verses long, and seven verses out of ten are just cram-packed with praise to God in Jeremiah 32. Let's go to the New Testament, however, and look at Acts chapter 4. After... Peter and John were in court, takes up in verse 23, and being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord, now here's agreement, and said, here's their prayer, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is who by the mouth of thy servant David hast said, Why did the heathen rage, and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth, against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Now their petition. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word, by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. Now notice that prayer. That prayer is only about seven verses long. But that prayer includes a great measure of praise. In verse 24, the praise is of God's creation. Now, what does creation have to do with protection from civil authorities? It's ascribing greatness to our God. And God loves to be reminded that he did create heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is in six days. Verse 25 describes God laughing at the heathen. Why did the heathen rage? and the people imagined vain things. The kings of the earth stood up. What a joke. He's quoting from Psalm 2, that the kings of the earth would try to oppose Almighty God. This church raises that scripture. Verse 28, they describe the determinant counsel of God that determined the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, acknowledging God's sovereignty even in the death of God's Son. And then they bring their petition in verses 29 and 30. Was this prayer effectual? Verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place was shaken, where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. What did they pray for? Speak the word of God with boldness. What happened? They spake the word of God with boldness. How did they get there? They praised God. Notice the emphasis on praise. 
In Acts chapter 16 and verse 25, Paul and Silas are holding a prayer partner's prayer meeting in jail. What did they do in their prayer partner's prayer service? Acts 16, 25, and at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. What did they do together? They sang praise, and they prayed. You want your prayers to be heard? Then do some singing and some speaking and some remembering of praise to God. Praise is important because God loves praise. You are in this world. You are in existence for His praise. Make sure you fulfill that role. He'll honor your petitions that follow it. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. If you're delighting in the Lord, you're going to remind, be reminding him of the great things he's done. Listen, today was one of the most beautiful days the world has ever seen. I took a walk today and just looking at the pine needles on pine trees. You know, what a boring commodity in South Carolina. There's more pine trees than the Pope has Catholics. Pine trees everywhere, scrub pine, ugly pine, pretty pine, 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 but they're beautiful. So green, so green, aren't they? What? Just looking at those pine needles, I was asking myself, I had a, listen, I had a great afternoon. I didn't get my nap, but I had a great talk with God out in that beautiful weather. I'm glad I'm a South Carolinian. I mean, up north, I'd have been sitting beside the fireplace having my talk with God, and it's hard to talk sitting beside Beside a fireplace, you tend to fall asleep. Pine needles. Pine needles are so beautiful. And then next to a pine tree, a birch tree. Totally different leaves. One tree knows to drop its leaves. The other tree keeps them. What made the difference? The tree doesn't have a brain, does it? You all may think I'm a silly, infantile man. But I'll tell you, I enjoy every minute of it. I look at that thing and I just ask myself, what makes the difference? Trees don't have brains. When did, how did that tree know to, to throw off branches? You look at a tree and it's got all these branches. It took years to develop. How did it know to throw off those branches and spread out those branches and grow leaves? And one tree knows how to grow them round and the other tree grows them sharp and pointed. One tree drops them and the other tree keeps them. Silly. Oh, I have some of the best times just looking at something silly. So silly man couldn't ever figure it out. You think they'll ever tap? What causes one tree to grow pine needles and another tree to grow deciduous leaves? Not on your life. You know why? It resides in heaven. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. Isn't that it? Today was beautiful. I mean, today was beautiful. Maybe the, maybe the most beautiful day the world's ever seen. You say, that's ridiculous. Listen, you ought to live every day that way. Right. You ought to live. And listen, when the clouds come over, go to Greenville Airport, if you don't know it, and take a flight to Atlanta. It'll get you high enough, and you'll see the sun is still shining just as nice as it was today. The infirmity is where? Here, here. We're weak. But what a beautiful day. Did you thank God for it? Did you praise Him for making the pine needle? Now, maybe you didn't look at the pine needle. Maybe you're deeper than I am, and you looked at the squirrel. Maybe you looked at the human body. Maybe you thought about Scott and Wandina's new child. You, you spend five minutes on childbirth, it'll blow your mind bring into existence another human being, eyes that function. Did you tell your wife to make sure it had eyes that work? It's amazing. I'll be simple the rest of my life if that's simplicity. But that's God, and He wants to be praised. And I'll tell you I praise Him when I'm out looking at those things. And He speaks to me in the joy of my heart. Even if I do have the same infirmities that all of you have, remember to praise God. You delight in Him, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. What I did this afternoon was delighting in Him, and I'm looking for some more desires.
he's given me them all, so I need to work on some more. I'll, I'll do that. But make sure you delight in him. Effectual prayer better include thanksgiving. God expects us to rejoice and be thankful. Have you ever regretted that you didn't have the opportunity to take a lamb out of your flock and cut its throat and go bring the blood and the meat and the fur and everything before the Lord? Now, that does sound bad. I, I, maybe you haven't regretted that. Either have I in that respect. We don't have the means, or you may think we don't have the means, to go bring a sacrifice to the Lord. Can you imagine having your children, you know, help carry the basket of grain, maybe, and bring it before the Lord and set it down and step back, and then the next child steps forward with the product of the vineyard and puts it down and steps, what's the product of the vineyard? <laughs> it's a wine cooler. And the next child comes and steps forward with seed and puts it down before the Lord, and the family can stand back. There's the first fruits of their harvest, and you can give it to God. Do you wish you could do that? God doesn't want those sacrifices anymore. Do you know what he wants? Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. I've thought of that before, being able to bring some things directly to God, especially if fire came down from heaven and torched it. Wouldn't that be great? Would you feel like you'd got through and he had accepted your gift? <laughs> Hebrews 13, 15. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. You want to offer a continual sacrifice? They had the, day, the morning and the evening sacrifice. You can have a morning and evening and noon sacrifice. You can be one up on the children of Israel. How? By giving thanks to his name, by praising him continually and doing it with thanks. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You all include thanksgiving. Listen, God can't stand murmurers or complainers. He's given you so much, be thankful for what you've got. If he sees that you're really grateful for what you've got, what does any parent want to do? Give them some more. They like that thanksgiving. We all love to hear, thank you. That was very kind. Don't we? Okay, none of you feel that way. I like people saying to me, thank you. That was very kind of you. I want to do something else for that person to hear it again. It's music to my ears, and it's music to God's ears. He wants to hear it continually. First Thessalonians 5, if you read it quickly, you'll just think Paul's just scatterbrained, and he's throwing a lot of thoughts together in a hurry at the end of the chapter before he closes out his book. Haven't you ever thought that, reading the last chapter of First Thessalonians? I mean, he's just throwing all sorts of things together, but I see some order. Verse 16, rejoice evermore. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Verse 18, in everything give thanks. I think there's some order there. I think we ought to do some rejoicing and some thanksgiving when we pray without ceasing. Make sure we include thanksgiving when you pray. Or do you want to be like the Israelites who murmured in the wilderness and God overthrew them? Are you waiting for little fiery serpents in your bed? Are you waiting for quail that God gives you so that you can dive into it and he strikes you dead while it's between your teeth? You say, but God bless them. We can do without such blessings. Amen. He did send them quail, didn't he? The Bible tells us in Psalm 106, he gave them their heart's desire and sent leanness into their souls. I don't want you to get that, but if you pray without thanksgiving, you'll get that because that's just what Israel did. They complained to God because they weren't being taken care of with garlics and leeks. Can you imagine that? They had manna and water, and they wanted garlics and leeks. Look at Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. The carefree life, the peace that passes all understanding, how do you get it? Philippians 4, 6, be careful for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. Is that what it says? Philippians 4, 6. No, it says, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. 
Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Thanksgiving must be coupled in there if you want a peaceful life. What is our nature? We may have a list this long of things we ought to be thankful for, and we know we are blessed. And if we have two things over here that went wrong, guess what we think about the most? What is wrong with our lives? What is wrong with our family? What is wrong with our budget? What is wrong with our church? What is wrong with our pastor? Instead of all these things. It's the nature of man. It stinks. And if you do this, you won't have peace. You ought to be thanking God for these, and I'll tell you what will happen. These will disappear. These will disappear if you'll concentrate on all the blessings God's given you. They'll be blown into insignificance, especially, you know, preaching to a congregation in America. There is no doubt that statement is true. You have so much to be thankful for. Be thankful. I love to hear my children pray. I've already taught them this series when it comes to a short outline for prayer that we'll get to in a week or we'll get to next week, God helping us. And one of the things they have to remember is to thank God for something in their prayer or it's thank God for something. <laughs> Dad helps out by reminding them that they forgot one of the things that you should include in a prayer. And I love hearing my children thank God for simple things, clothing. That's why I get National Geographic, so they can see children without clothing. They have it. For a roof over their heads that keeps the rain off, they'll pray that simplistically. I get National Geographic to see children that don't have a home. For their food, for their health, for their eyes that work, I remind them, and I like showing them pictures of blind children. Show them a book of Braille. How would you like to read this book? David, you wouldn't read 166 books in six weeks. You'd read one book in 166 weeks. We have a lot to be thankful for, every one of you. I could, make you, you could, I could have you stand right now, and we could just go right down the list. I can do it for you, and I've offered before. If you, if you don't think you've been blessed, call me. And I'll remind you of some of the things I remind my children of, and those are natural. They can't appreciate yet what we have spiritually. We have a lot. Be thankful. It'll bring peace in your life, and God will hear your prayer. Pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Make that a part of the content of your prayer. John chapter 14, Jesus said this. John 14 and verse 13, And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. God wants Jesus Christ to get glory. How does Jesus Christ get glory? For you to pray for something in the name of Jesus Christ and for God to do it for you. Guess who you're going to thank? Guess who you're going to rejoice in? Guess who you're going to praise? Jesus Christ. God and Christ will answer your prayers if you pray in Christ's name. Now, what does it mean to pray in Christ's name? Does it mean at the end of your prayer to say, in Jesus' name, amen? How many times have you ever heard that? Huh. There was a point in my life where I stopped praying in the name of Jesus, and it was a gross error. I wouldn't even say that. I was so sick of hearing people say, in Jesus' name, amen. Do you know what that is? It's taking the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You don't even know what you're saying. That is one of the other points of prayer that we'll get to. When you pray in the name of Jesus, you say more than in Jesus' name, amen. Say something about what you mean by that. What do we mean by praying in the name of Jesus? We mean that we're praying with his merit before God. We mean that we're praying clothed in his righteousness. We mean that we're praying in his authority because we are joint heirs with Christ. How's that for power with God? Tell them that. God, I read in your word that I'm a joint heir with Christ. I'm an heir of you. I'm supposed to inherit God. And pray that way. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. His merit, 
his value before Almighty God, his obedience. I come to thee, O God, in the obedience of thy holy child, Jesus. How's that for obedience? Do you think you're righteous then? Is that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man? Oh, if you're coming in the obedience of Christ, you can't get any more righteous. Don't flip out that name Jesus. If you wonder why your prayers may not have been too effectual, think about how you use the name of Jesus. God wants that name lifted up, not dragged through the mud. In Jesus' name, amen. But do pray in his name. Don't make my error of overreaction. I share that with you simply because I was so disgusted at hearing his name abused. It means to pray in his authority, his merit, his value, his work, his glory, his power, his rank. That's what it means. You're being a name dropper. I mean, if you walked into someone and said, President Reagan authorized me to do this, they'd probably listen. And when you're dealing with God and you said, I'm praying in the name of Jesus Christ, that is his authority and his obedience and his righteousness, you're commanding respect in the throne room of heaven. Because I can read in Revelation chapter 5, and I could read in a number of places, but I read in Revelation chapter 5 where God sat on a throne and no man could open the book that was in his hand. But Jesus Christ could. Jesus Christ commands respect in heaven, and he is our great, a source of great leverage in prayer with God. You may be so desperate at some point in time that you'll pray for God to give you your request or to judge you for it. Look at Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32, Moses was a master prayer. Moses used a number of the items of content we're going to be studying. Moses appealed based on things God said. Moses prayed for judgment. Moses also said this in Exodus 32, when the foolish Israelites had made themselves a golden calf and called it the Lord. Moses said this, God was going to destroy them. And Moses says in verse 30, he begins his, he, be, he makes a statement to the people in verse 30, ye have sinned a great sin. And now, now I will go up unto the Lord. Peradventure I shall make an atonement for your sin. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Therefore now go, lead the people unto the place of which I have spoken unto thee. And verse 35, And the Lord plagued the people because they had made the calf which Aaron made. Notice Moses' prayer. He asked God for forgiveness in the middle. Notice that dash you have in your English version. You just cut off. If thou wilt forgive their sin, and if you won't, just cut me out of your books. Have you ever prayed that way? A prayer such as, God, strike me dead, take me out of the land of the living, take away my life. If as the pastor of your congregation, I lead those people astray. You ever pray that way? You don't pray that way for everything, but you pray that way for things that are important to you. That's a content of prayer. Didn't the Apostle Paul say in Romans chapter 9, I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now when he talks about the book here, he's not talking about the book of life. He's talking about the book of the living, the, book, the life of the, the land of the living, cutting them out of that book of living existence because God did cut them out. And what did he do? How did he cut them out? He killed them physically. That's a sincere prayer when you pray that and you mean it. The words don't mean anything, but if you mean that in your heart, you know what you're, you're putting yourself on line with God that if you would ever be tempted to lead your, the, his people astray or if you'd be tempted to be, to commit adultery on your spouse, God, strike me dead before I would do it. 
keep me from it by taking me out of this world. Sounds like a serious request. Sounds like a good one, too. Sounds like if you're going to sin like that, better to get out of here. Better to get out of here anyway. But it's a serious request. Moses prayed that way. That's all we're going to cover this evening. On the content of prayer, this evening we studied praying for God to specifically reveal His will is scriptural, but be careful in doing it. Make sure you have exhausted all natural means to knowing the will of God before you ask for supernatural revelation. Number two, it's very scriptural to pray for God's judgment on God's enemies. Number three, remind God of His promises when you pray. Learn a few choice promises and hold them up before God. It works. And if you have prayer partners, make Matthew 18, 19 an integral part of your prayer. Number four, make a vow in prayer if you need to, but be careful. Don't be rash by being imprudent and make sure you pay it when you vow. Make sure you praise God in prayer. He wants to hear praise and he'll hear such a prayer. Make sure that you include thanksgiving when you pray. It's such prayer that brings peace that passes understanding and an answer to your requests. Effectual prayer must be done in the name of Jesus Christ, for it is Jesus Christ by which we have access to the grace and help of God at His throne. And make sure, if you're dealing with something seriously, you put yourself on the line about how important it is to you, as Moses did with the children of Israel in Exodus 32. Was Moses a loving pastor? Isn't he? Wasn't he something? Over and over and over. And God had even told him, I'll make a new nation out of you. Wouldn't you be tempted? Moses was quite a man. Look at his example of praying. Remember God's promises. Appeal to God. Use all the leverage you can. I trust that you'll learn how to wrestle with God and have more effectual prayer lives. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.